0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse number one. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent the servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And he took And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and inherit and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that the parable He had told was against them, so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul once wrote, "Every professing Christian should read today's passage as a warning. All who are truly in Christ, of course, cannot finally fall away from grace. But only those who who bear fruit for the kingdom are truly in Christ. Believers." May vary in the amount of fruit they produce, but there is no such thing as a fruitless believer. Consider the day the fruit, excuse me, consider this day the fruit you are producing in the form of good works, of service, progress in sanctification, discipleship, and other such things. So, if I could just be honest with you guys this morning, I'd like to share with you a little known detail about me. Right? Most people don't know this about me. Now, most people know that I do love movies. I think that's obvious. Uh, but, but there's a particular movie that I really love that you might not think would be on my all-time favorites list. But it's a movie that really, you know, when you think about it, has incredible dialogue. Especially, I love movies that have great dialogue. Right? I mean, I, I do love action movies. I mean, what man doesn't, right? Things blowing up, machine guns going off. That's all good, right? And I love special effects. I mean, my wife yawns when she sees space and, and laser beams and stuff like that. And I'm all in for that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? And and I love the epics as well. The you know the movies that take like you know nine movies to tell the story. You know, um, but the movies I love the most, the movies that I really you know, like think about later on you know, are the ones that have incredible dialogue in them, right? The ones where, where people have just great conversations, especially when maybe there's the antagonist, right, or the bad guy, and the protagonist, the good guy, they end up having a conversation. They end up face-to-face, right? And that conversation is really usually filled with, with sarcasm a little bit, underlying, you know, uh, tension. There's always great quotes that come out of them, and there's always witty comments and, and, and surprising comebacks, I mean, like, for instance, like when you think of good dialogue, I mean, who doesn't think of a few good men, right? If you've seen that movie, you remember the court scene, you remember the back and forth, you remember the moment, I want the truth, right? You can't handle the truth. Is, right? We all have seen that. We remember that part of the movie. It was, it was riveting, right? right? Or how about Silence of the Lambs? The conversation between Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling, you know, even though he was creepy and he he won an Academy Award for that, he didn't win an Academy Award for being creepy. It was just the dialogue was just fantastic. The way they played off one another, it's just captivating, right? And and there's a lot to miss if you don't actually hear all the conversation. Or, Or how about the Shawshank Redemption? I mean, that's one of my, again, one of my favorite movies as well. And the main characters had a lot of great things to say, but there was a conversation where it really climaxes and him and Red are having an argument. And finally, he says the line that everybody remembers. I guess it's time to either get busy living or get busy dying, right? Everybody relates to that quote. In fact, I even did a sermon. I actually did a sermon that was titled Get Busy Living or Get Busy Dying, right? I love great dialogue in movies. And one of my favorite movies, because of the dialogue, which might surprise you, is The Sound of Music. Right. Now, some of you who might be younger go, huh? What? What's that? All right. But I'm telling you, if you've not watched The Sound of Music, it is actually one of the best movies ever produced. I know it, you might look it back and it was in the 60s and it might seem cheesy to you. But I'm telling you, it was one of the best movies produced. It had a great storyline. The music was amazing. But, but the dialogue, the dialogue is some of the best I've ever seen. And, and there's lots of examples of great dialogue in the movie. But there's one particular scene that I just... He just if if I hear it I'm going to stop and I'm going to watch no matter what I'm doing, and it's the scene at the big party at Captain Von Trapp's house right you know it's set in Austria right before World War II, and Germany's trying to put pressure on Austria to join them right and the, and the children has have just finished singing their goodnight song this beautiful harmony that they did a lot of fun and everybody's just so impressed with them and a lady stops Captain Von Trapp and mentions how they sang and said you must be really really proud and he said yes I'm very proud. And then, and then her husband says, right, you know, is there a, a more beautiful expression of what is good in our country than our innocent voices or, or the innocent voices of our children, right? And Captain Von Trapp smiles and taps him and walks away in agreement. And, and then, and then this, this bad guy, you know, this Nazi, Herr Zeller, he hears the conversation and he walks up and he says, no, Captain, come now. Would you have us believe that Austria holds a monopoly on virtue? And Captain von Trapp said, Herr Zeller, uh, some of us prefer Austrian voices raised in song to ugly German threats. You know, whoo, right? (laughs) And Herr Zeller says, well, the ostrich buries his head in the sand, but sometimes in the flag, and he looks at the Austrian flag. Perhaps those who would warn you uh, that the Auslunz or the, the, the agreement between Germany and Austria, the Auslunz is coming. And it is coming, Captain. Perhaps they would get further with you, you know, by setting their words to music. And Captain von Trapp very quickly says, if the Nazis take over Austria, I have no doubt, Herr Zeller, that you would be the entire trumpet section. And Herr Zeller goes, you flatter me, Captain. And Captain Bond Trapp, in the best movie, of the, in, the, in the line, the whole movie, he, he walks away, turns right back and goes, Oh, how clumsy of me. I meant to accuse you. It's like, whew, what incredible tension, right? What great dialogue. And then he walks away, right? It's a brilliant moment in the movie as the tension begins to grow towards its climax. And I want you to know this part of Mark that we're in right now, that is what we're seeing here. Like, I can't overemphasize what's happening back and forth between Jesus and these men. This confrontation that's taking place between him and his antagonists, the the, the Sanhedrin, right? Right? They are his real rivals in the story. Everything's been growing towards this confrontation, right? And these these men will eventually deliver him up to Christ. And so Jesus has been engaging these these men in a battle of words. And the tension is very, very high. And this conversation, Jesus will not only continue to challenge their authority, he will then accuse the leaders, he will pronounce judgment on them because of their failures as leaders of Israel, right? And all this is going to do is going to raise the tension even more. It's just going to strengthen their resolve to eventually kill him, right? Right? I mean, when you look at it and you see exactly what's happening here, there's not a better script. There's not. What Jesus says next after what what happened before is absolutely riveting. So turn with me again to Mark chapter 12. And we're going to begin reading in verse number one. And it reads, And he began to speak to them in parables. And the thing that we need to understand is this is a continuation of the conversation that was started in chapter 11, verses 12. Uh, 27 through 33, the, the 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 text that we looked at last week, this is the exact same event. Like, no time has passed. And this is a detail I want you to know when you, when you read the Bible is something that people will overlook. And the reason why is because there's a chapter break. For some reason, somebody decided to put a chapter break there. What you need to realize, right, is that chapter breaks, which were added only a few hundred years ago, by the way, the chapter break sometimes can artificially break up the flow of the text and even even the, the flow of thought if people think that that's where the action starts and stops. And sometimes people see the chapter break and they think, well, this must be a different event. Why? Well, because there's a new chapter, right? That's how we think in books, so we think that way. Well, this is not the case. Sometimes chapter breaks in the Bible are just really kind of random, Right? And so if you remove the chapter break and you look at the the text in its original context, you will see that this is a continuation of the same conversation. You see, a few days before, Jesus did what? He rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of specific prophecy. And by doing so, he he was declaring that he was the Messiah and the King. And everyone, everyone, everyone recognized it. And the fact was, the city was electric with, with, with excitement at his arrival. The anticipation was very high during that particular Passover. And Jesus had confirmed that they had, you know, that what they had suspected about him. That he was the promised one. And after he rides into the city, right, he, he stops by the temple. Momentarily, he looks and surveys, you know, God's house Goes to Bethany for the night and then and then comes back the next morning. And the next morning, he and his disciples on their way to the temple, right? On their way, they see a fig tree. And, and Jesus uses this fig tree as, as a living parable, and he pronounces a curse on it for the lack of fruits. This is a living parable of a judgment against Israel, because the fig tree is one of the symbols of the nation of Israel. So the first thing that Jesus does, I want you to realize, the first thing he does as the new king is he pronounces a judgment against Israel. And then he and his disciples go to the temple. He physically drives out the merchants, you know, um, who have set up shop there. They're selling animals. They're they're exchanging coins from Roman coins to temple coins. And Jesus puts a stop to this by driving them out of the temple and, and by flipping over tables. And not only that, he prevents people from transporting their merchandise through the court of the Gentiles. I mean, he stops all the commerce that's distracting from worship. And, and he said to the crowd, you know, th- the court of the Gentiles was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, This part of the temple was a place where Israel was to lead the nations in worship to God, but instead they hijacked this space and turned it into a swap meet, basically depriving or robbing the Gentiles of their ability to worship God. And so Israel, like this fig tree, had become unfruitful because of its hypocrisy, and Jesus had judged them for that. Well, this is the very next day. Jesus comes back to the temple where his disciples are walking in the court, and the religious leaders, you know, the Sanhedrin, and they come out, and what do they do? They confront him right? because of what he did the day before. They came to him and questioned him about his authority of what he was doing. In short, they're asking, essentially, who do you think you are? Right? Really, who do you think you are? I mean, I mean, visualize this. The most powerful men, politically speaking, in all of Israel, besides the Roman governor himself, they were asking, who do you think you are of Jesus? I mean, visualize this. The most powerful men are coming to confront this one guy. And they do this in an effort to basically exert their authority over him because they think that they have the authority to do so. And they demand of him, by what authority do you do these things? Because because we have authority, not you. Well, Jesus quickly turns the tables on them and says, No, I'm not going to tell you that. In fact, answer me a question. Tell me. John's mission, where does it come from? Does it come from God? Does it come from heaven, right? Come from God or come from man? And they refuse to answer the question because they know that if they say it from God, then they realize that they should be listening to him and giving him the authority he deserves because he's the Messiah. But if they say he's from man, he's going to lose the support of, they're going to lose the support of the crowd Right? Like politicians are going to play to the crowd because they don't want to lose their support because, they, because the crowd believes that John the Baptist is, is a prophet. So they say, what? We don't know. And so because of that, in essence, Jesus says, All right, I have authority, but I don't have to tell you where it comes from. I don't owe you an explanation. Right? I have the right to, to do what I'm doing, and you don't have the right to even talk to me about it. So just imagine the tension of that moment. Just imagine kind of like the back and forth that's taken place. Jesus the king is face to face with those who think that they have a right not only to lead, but they think that they have the right to deny his authority. It reminds me of another great movie, right? The Return of the King, where Gandalf tells Denethor, right? Who is trying to hold on to authority. He says, authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward, right? Right? What a great line, right? And it's really applicable here. It's kind of that same kind of tension. Jesus in that moment is basically saying, you have no authority over me, right? Right. And then (laughs) what comes next in our text, you know, really turns up the heat. I mean, there's already a lot of tension now. You can just see like, okay, what's going to happen next? And now Jesus is not going to let up. He's going to turn it up. And he says, he speaks to them in parables and he says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. Now, in the 21st century, we might look at this and simply think that Jesus is making, you know, is telling us to make a point. He's using an agricultural analogy to make a point. But the men standing before him and everyone around them in the first century would have understood very clearly what Jesus was getting at, what he was talking about. First of all, the idea of tenant farmers in that time was super common, especially in the Jordan Valley. Someone would own a piece of land that they didn't live on and they would rent it to farmers and their families would, would would uh, they would rent it to farmers and their families and they would do so in order to profit from the land. Otherwise, it would just sit there vacant with nothing happening. And these tenants would work the land to benefit from their own labor, but it cost them a percentage of the harvest to do so. Right? This is similar to the idea, the practice of sharecropping that we knew in America. My grandfather, Hubert Burkhead, right, so... Praise the Lord I didn't name any of my kids Hubert, right? Hubert Burkhead. He was a sharecropper in Arkansas in, in the 1940s and 50s. And he was so until uh, 1958 when they moved to uh, California. My, and he went to work for a bigger farmer uh, as a foreman, right? And so again, the idea is simple: a farmer, you know, who has no land, who has that skill, who can can work the land, doesn't own any land, right? He goes and works for somebody who does in exchange for the share of the harvest. And in Judah, this was a very common practice. And typically, the cost was about a third to half of the harvest. That was the arrangement. And again, this was very common; they would have been familiar with this. But that's not the only thing that they would have noticed. The second thing, and the most important thing, these men, especially the Sanhedrin, would have understood is is Jesus is talking about something a little bit more important, right? What he's talking about would would have popped right into their head. Jesus is paraphrasing, right? He's not just telling a story off the top of his head. Jesus is paraphrasing an important text in Isaiah, a text that these men would have been completely familiar with, and a text that would have been relevant for their time, So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. This is just a brief kind of interlude here. But but you will see how this relates. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 5. And it says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Now notice this. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines and built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Notice the parallels, okay? between Isaiah and what Jesus is saying. Jesus is clearly and purposefully using language. It's taking these men back to this text. you got to remember, when they spoke in that time, they didn't say, Isaiah chapter 4, there was no such thing. right? They usually would start reciting a verse, and those men had memorized these verses, and so they knew exactly where he was going. When he started talking about a vineyard, and he said, you know, uh, a watchtower and a wine press, right? They knew exactly what he's referring to. And the reason why he's doing this is he's drawing their attention to something important in this text. Isaiah goes on and says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And so what he's asking is, instead of, bearing good fruit. This thing, this vineyard is bearing bad fruit. It's what God's saying here. And then he says, and now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured and I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down and I will make it a waste and it shall be pruned. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. And then notice this, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Right? Let that sink in. Given where we have been in the last chapter and what's transpired, right? Jesus, when he tells this parable about the vineyard, he is referring to the nation of Israel. He is referring, and also by implication, to the judgment Of Israel that's coming upon them for their unfruitlessness. That is why Jesus cursed the fig tree, remember? So understand in this parable, Jesus isn't simply using a farming metaphor to explain some spiritual truth. He is deliberately drawing these men into the story of Israel itself in in its judgment that awaits her. And so, the vineyard then represents clearly what? Israel. That's what it means. It's what it represents. There's no question, right? And then the man who planted the vineyard is who? But God himself, right? which is something that they, that, that they would have known from Isaiah chapter 5. So they would have known where Jesus was kind of going with this. But the tenants of the vineyard now right, present a new wrinkle, right? This, this, this idea of tenants, right? Because who are they? Who do they represent in this parable? Well, they represent the leaders of Israel. That's who they represent, the priests and the scribes and the rulers. And and now there's the Sanhedrin. They are the tenant farmers. They're the ones who were to cultivate the vineyard. They're the ones who were commissioned to take care of Israel. Can you see the relationship? And so so with that understanding, let's look at this verse again. A man planted a vineyard. So God creating out of nothing the nation of Israel. The way that a person goes to the ground and starts digging and starts with really nothing, right? God created Israel out of nothing, right? And then put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower, right? This is a picture of someone lovingly and carefully building the vineyard, doing all the things that are required to make the vineyard flourish. The way that God lovingly cared for and created Israel. Notice the walls that he built to protect her from the wild boars, And the watchtower to provide shelter and and, and to help keep it secure. This would draw the audience, Jesus' audience, to Israel's history. How God faithfully rescued her out of Egypt. How God provided for her in the desert. How God drove out her enemies before the land. How God protected her and lovingly provided for her and took care of her over and over and over again. And then it says that the man of God... The man or God leased it out to tenants and went into a far or to another country. The owner of the land then who lovingly created this vineyard now is entrusting his work into the hands of tenant farmers. Right. Which is a representation of how God had entrusted the nation of Israel into the hands of the religious leaders. Right. And who does it begin with? Begins with Moses. Right. The faithful servant. Moses. Moses. And Aaron were entrusted with the nation of Israel, then then came Joshua, and then then a long lineage of priests that came from Aaron. And then, as you know, if you know anything about the history of Israel, then came the kings, right? And eventually this led to where they are today, to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, which as we talked about, is this group of men, the Sanhedrin, right? They are the ruling elites of Israel. They are the ones who are supposed to be taking care of it. They are the tenant farmers in this story. And then he says, When the season come, he, the landowner, sent a servant to the tenant to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now this right here really kind of connects all the dots together of what we've been talking about for the last, the last several weeks. right? This verse right here helps us to see what's been happening because what is the point of planting a vineyard? To get fruit, right? To get, to get grapes, right? right? That's the point. What was the point of God creating Israel? For Israel to bear fruit. Well, what fruit is, were they supposed to bear? Well, this is the point that brings all this together. The fruit was for, what was the fruit that, that Israel had to bear for God? Glorifying God in such a way as to bring the nations of the world to God. The fruit of Israel, right? The reason why God created Israel was to bear the fruit of worldwide worship. Right? Remember, right? The Old Testament says that Israel was created to be a light to the Gentiles. That's why they were created. They were not simply created to just be the people of God. A farmer doesn't plant a vineyard to have grapevines, they, they plant it to get fruit. A farmer doesn't plant an apple orchard to have trees. The trees are a side benefit of that, right? They plant an apple orchard to have the apples for the fruits. God did not cre- create Israel simply to have a people. They are his people. That's what he created but them. But that's not the purpose. They were, they, they were created to bear fruit. He, he took this group of nothing people the least people, the Bible says, among the nations and turned them into a nation that at one time was the most powerful, one of the most powerful nations in the world, one of the most prosperous and wealthy in the world. He selected these people to be his own possession. He put his favor upon them, had his presence reside with them. He prospered them. Right? And the reason for all of this is so that, 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 that they would glorify God for all the world to see. For them to worship Him. For the world to come to God and worship Him. That is the fruit. Israel was God's ambassadors on the earth. They were representing God Himself. Their purpose was to bring the nations to God in worship. That was the fruit they were created for. The fruit of Israel was to bring the nations to God in worship. And the leaders then, these Israelites, these leaders... These tenant farmers, it was their job to cultivate the fruits. It was their job to do what needed to be done to make the fruit grow. It was their job to train and encourage and admonish and teach and correct and direct the nation of Israel through the word of God to become the people who lived and acted in such a way that demonstrated God's glory and God's grace and God's love for the rest of the world. So they would see him and his goodness through these people and know truly that he is the Lord. These men were to prune the vines, so to speak, and cut away the things that, that led to unfruitfulness. They were there to pluck out the weeds and to drive off the pests and to nurture the vineyard and to care for it so that it would yield a good fruit. That was their job. That's why God entrusted the vineyard to them. Their job was to cultivate this fruit, but it was a job that they were failing at. Isaiah says that God went looking for the fruits, and they found bad fruit. Jesus said that God sends his servants to the tenants to look for fruits. Now, what we know is that in in this parable, that the man is God, and we know that the vineyard is Israel, and the tenants are the leaders of Israel, or the Sanhedrin, but who are the servants? Well, the servants are pretty easy to identify as the prophets of the Old Testament. Right? The fact is, the prophets of the Old Testament, you, know, you will find in the Bible, they were called the servants of God. And God had sent them leaders, to sent these men, these servants, these prophets to the leaders of, of Israel to call them back to faithfulness, to call them back to obedience, to call them back to fruitfulness. These servants, these prophets would come warning these leaders. It is time to get right with God or his judgment is coming upon you for your failure. I mean, Isaiah, that was the warning that, that, that God was going to destroy his own vineyard, the nation of Israel. That's what Isaiah 5 is all about. But then Jesus says, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Throughout the history of Israel, prophets were routinely rejected by leaders God would send them with a message that these, that these men should repent and turn back to God, right? And the leaders would just be rejected and scorned, and they would mistreat the prophets. And then Jesus says, and again, he sent them other servants, and he struck, them, struck him on the head, which literally means he broke his head. And then treated him shamefully, and he sent another, and, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they, they killed. And I want you to notice kind of like the escalation in violence, right? This isn't hyperbole, though. Jesus isn't just saying this to just, you know, overstate the case. This is actually the history of Israel. This isn't just some quaint parable. Jesus is recounting the history of Israel in miniature you know, through these parables for these men. And this is a history that they were well aware of. The leaders of Israel were known for the mistreatment of the prophets. In the Bible, we see that Jeremiah was beaten and then put into a pit of mud, and he was left there to die. It was the the invading army that actually lifted him out. He was called a liar. They burned one of his scrolls. And eventually, he was stoned to death. Elijah was persecuted and chased all over by the, the monarch and his wife right, for his faithfulness to the point where he even said to God, I'm the only one left. And God said, hang on there, buddy. There's 5,000 of you left. Just chill out. Isaiah, who was who's the one that prophesied about the judgment of Israel, I don't know if you realize, but he was sawn in half. That's how they killed him. They took a saw and cut him in half. I don't know about you, but that's not the way I want to go out. And then you have John the Baptist who was arrested for his message of repentance and he was beheaded by one of the leaders of Israel. Now at, at this point, these men, they must have become aware that Jesus was not only blaming them for the lack of fruit in Israel, but now he was connecting them with the evil leadership of the past who had killed the prophets. Okay? If you can imagine now this kind of conversation, how the tension is beginning to grow here. And then Jesus, when he has them here, as they're probably like, their hearts are racing a little bit, a little bit more irritated. Jesus then takes it one step further and he says, he still had another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, there isn't any question of who Jesus is referring to here. Jesus is his Son. Is that good? Okay. They understand that he's referring to himself, by the way. They know what John the Baptist had said about him. They know that, that, that he was sent from God. If you remember his com- confrontation with Nicodemus, his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, they know that he was claiming to be the Messiah because that dude just rode into town on the back of a donkey and, every, and the whole city was electric. They knew what was going on. They knew he was claiming to be the anointed one. But for some reason, they can't find it within themselves to submit and listen to him. They won't respect him, right? They know what he's claiming to be, but they believe that they have the rightful leadership of Israel that is rightly theirs. And so Jesus calls them out and says, But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. One of the common disputes that would happen between tenant farmers and landowners at this time was a sense of ownership. Landowners owned the land. It was rightfully theirs, right? But the tenants, because they lived on the land for so long, I mean, because it takes like five years. You plant a vineyard, it takes five years to get that first harvest, they lived on the land so long, and because they worked the land, they become attached to it. They almost felt like, like, like ownership of it, like it was rightfully theirs. They felt as if they should own the land. I mean, the other guy's doing nothing, just sitting there. And this is not an uncommon phenomenon, even in our own time. I mean, people who work for companies will, in a sense, feel a sense of, um, of ownership and even entitlement when, when they work for a company for a long time. They feel that they should have more say. They feel entitled you know, to determine the direction of the company. But in the end, you know, the company belongs to the person who owns it. And, and, and this is even you know, something we see in our community today with, with property, right? I mean, one of the issues we face right now is, is squatters. They come into the community. They, they find a vacant property. They know that nobody's paying attention to it. Next thing you know, they move in. They're living there, right? And then you've got to fight, Legally, to get them out of the house because they are starting to lay claim of ownership. And then what's, what's odd is if you let them stay long enough, the law actually begins to recognize their claim of ownership. And so it makes it getting, getting them out even more difficult. So this dispute between landlord and tenant is, it was a very common issue. And Jesus uses this dispute to indict the Sanhedrin. He uses this this confrontation to point at them because these men, in a very real sense, were laying claim to something that absolutely belonged to God. You know what that is? It's the fruit of His glory. Remember, the nation of Israel was created to glorify God. And these religious leaders were not concerned about the glory of God. They weren't. They might act like they were, but they were not concerned about the glory of God. They were concerned about their own glory. They were greedy for their own glory. They did not live to serve God by tending the vineyard of Israel. They lived to serve themselves. They lived for power. They lived for prestige. They lived for fame. These men, Jesus warns about them. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't pray like the religious leaders do because they pray publicly to show how pious and, and how, how spiritual they are. Jesus said, don't do that. Right? Jesus said, also, when you fast, don't do it like they do where they, where they make their faces like they're in pain and oh, so people will go, look how devoted those men are. These Pharisees didn't labor for the glory of God. They labored for their own glory. In fact, in Matthew chapter, Matthew's gospel, shortly after this confrontation, Jesus publicly teaches about this, and he calls out the leaders in Matthew chapter 23. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they don't practice it. Right? They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Right? They do their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their, their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They, they like the long you know, garments. They like looking the parts. Right? And they love the place of honor at feasts. And, and the, the best seats in the synagogue. And, and greetings in the marketplace. And being called rabbi by others. They love their position. They love their title. These men are in love with themselves and their power. That's what they're living for. And that is the fruit that they cultivated in Israel. They, they did what they did, not because of God and His glory, but for themselves and their own glory. They wanted the glory for themselves. They wanted the prestige and the honor. Right? And let's be honest, they wanted the wealth too, because there's a lot of money in religion if you're in it for yourself. We see that around us today, right? There's a lot of money in religion if you're in it for the wrong reasons. So Jesus says, but to those tenants, said to one another, this is their heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now Jesus in this moment of the parable goes from history to prophecy. He's now confronting them in their sin and he is predicting how they're going to react to this. They are going to kill him. Which, by the way, if you remember, if we've been following along in Mark chapter 3, Jesus told his disciples three times exactly this. Once again, we see Christ's omniscience and his sovereignty on display. The thing to remember is that these, I guess the biggest heartbreaker for me would be, is they're not just talking to a man. They are face to face with God incarnate and don't even understand it. Sometimes I think that when people think that if Jesus was to really show up here, that they would recognize it, if Jesus came back, right, and that they would actually understand who he was, these men were standing face to face with the living God in the flesh, it went right over their heads. All they could think about was that they're going to kill him. He's telling them these things because of their greed and their hard hearts, that they're going to kill him. And then he gives them a clear warning. See, Jesus not only predicts the future, but he acts like a true prophet in the sense that he is actually warning them what's going to happen. And he says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. He has now pronounced judgment upon them, but unless they repent of their sins, the judgment of God will will fall upon them, and God will destroy them. And not only that, he's going to take the leadership of of God's vineyard from them and from, from their people forever, and he's going to give it to others. This is a prophecy concerning God's new tenants, the church. A group of people made up of faithful Jews and faithful Gentiles, who then labor together for the glory of God and to bring worldwide worship to God as he has ordained for them to do. And then he turns, turns and he emphasizes this point and says, have you not read the scripture? quoted in the Old Testament, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The cornerstone, whether it's the foundation stone or the, the chief cornerstone, the capstone, What it does is it unites two walls into a corner. This is a metaphor for Christ. He was the rejected stone. He's the rejected Messiah. But he is the one who unites the two groups of people that exist in the world, the Jews and the Gentiles, into the new house, the new building, the church. And his church will do the work that these leaders failed to do, which is to glorify God and bring nations of the world to to God. In fact, in light of that, think about the Great Commission. In light of that truth, in light of what we're seeing, what Israel is supposed to do, now let's look at the Great Commission. What does Jesus say? Go and make disciples of who? All the nations. You see, the goal is still exactly the same. To bring about worldwide worship of God. It's always been, and it always will be, about the glory of God. Church, I want you to hear me on this, okay? This is what salvation's about, what it has always been about, and what it will continue to be about. It's about the glory of God, and it's about, ultimately, the worldwide worship of God. It's always been about that, and it will always be about that. And so Jesus is telling these men, judgment for them is coming, and a new group of people are going to take over, laboring to bear fruit for God. And then it says, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. So they left him and went away. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying here, and this only strengthened their resolve to kill him. But they wouldn't take action yet. Why? Because they were afraid of the people, <laughs> like spineless politicians, like the ones today. Right? They had once again proven they had lost the right to lead. Now, there are three applications I just want to wrap up with this text this morning. And the first thing I want you to notice is that this parable was something that they could relate to. This was a parable that they were familiar with, right? And and this should have convicted them, right? But instead of heeding the warning, the warning of judgment and repenting of their sins, what did they do? They continued to reject Christ. This is the exact opposite response, by the way, of King David when he was confronted in his sin. You see, King David, after he had slept with Bathsheba, another man's wife, and gotten her pregnant, and then, because he couldn't cover it up, had her had, had her husband killed, right? Thinking he got away with it. The Nathan, The prophet Nathan came up to David and told him a parable, right? And the parable is worth repeating. It says, there was... There were two men in a certain city, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had many, very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but a ver- one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up and grew it up with him and his children. It used to eat from his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the men who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the men, and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he had did this thing and because he had no pity. <laughs> in one of the greatest turn of phrases in the entire Bible, Nathan said to the king, you are the man. You're the one that's guilty. You're the one who did this, David. And guess how David responded? No, he didn't go and have Nathan killed. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. David heard the truth and the warning, and he repented. But these men, when Jesus, God himself, standing before them, says, you're the wicked tenants. You're the ones who rejected the prophets. You're the ones who's going to kill the Son of God. Rather than repenting of their sin, they rejected Christ all the more. Which brings to the first application. The truth of God's judgment has come to all of you. All of you who hear my voice here in this room and online, the truth of God's judgment against sin has come to you. His wrath burns against all those who are in their sin. And one day, every one of us will meet him face to face. And for those of us who are not in Christ, he will pronounce a verdict on your sin and you will be found guilty. And he will righteously give you what you deserve for your sin, which is everlasting torment in hell not a pleasant doctrine to talk about, but it is the truth. But the word of the Lord has come to you to bring you hope. Because now you have two choices. Either you repent and believe the gospel or you reject Christ. Those are the only two choices that every person in the world has. Those who hear the good news, those who repent and believe in Christ and his life and death and resurrection, repent of their sins and their self-righteousness and believe, will be saved without question. But those who hear the gospel and continually reject God's gracious offer will be lost. Like these Pharisees. God forgave David, but not these religious leaders. So I call you right now, if you've not come to faith in Christ, if you have not turned to Him in faith, if you've not accepted His offer to be your Lord and Savior, not just Savior, but the Lord and Savior, if you've not repented and put your faith in Christ and Christ alone, I call you now, I beg you now to repent and believe. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. If you would but repent and believe the gospel, will you turn and trust in Christ? The second application I want to make here is that we need to abide in Christ. Right? This vineyard, right. The vine, the grapes, the fruits, these are continual, repetitive symbols. And it reminds me of John chapter 15, verse 5. And what does Jesus say? I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit, but for apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're a follower of Christ, the only way that you're going to live on mission for God is by abiding in Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the solid rock on which we must build our entire lives. He is the source of our hope, our strength, and our life. We need to abide in Him by staying connected to Him through prayer, through the reading of the Word, through regular worship and fellowship. The third application is if we're in Christ we need to commit to the mission and bear fruit. We need to examine the fruit in our lives. Let me remind you of the words of, of the late R.C. Sproul. Every professed Christian should read today's message as a warning. All who have truly are in Christ, of course, cannot finally fall away from grace, but only those who bear fruit for the kingdom are truly in Christ. Believers may vary in the amount of fruit they produce. But there's no such thing as a fruitless believer. Consider this day the fruit that you're producing in the form of good works and service, progress and sanctification, discipleship, and other such things. I call you to repent. I mean, I repeat his call, actually. I repeat his call. Consider for yourself this day the the, the fruit that you're producing in your life. Is it through the good works of service that we're all called to do? Remember, Paul said... Or you're, you're saved by grace through faith. It's not your doing, but a gift from God, so no one may boast. Right? It's a gift, but then he says, but we are created in Christ Jesus for the good works that God's already prepared beforehand for us. Right? How about through living on mission for Christ, bearing the fruits of an evangelist? Or how about sanctification? Are you growing in holiness? Is God drawing you to a life of of growing holiness in your life? Or how about discipleship? Are you actively connected to the body of Christ and are you growing to be more and more like Jesus? Because what did Jesus say? He said, follow me, right? The goal of the Christian life is not to just be better versions of us. It's to be like him. Now, here's my offer to all of you in all these applications, First of all, I would like to talk to those about fruit in their life and growing that. If you're someone who's looking to grow that fruit in their life, if they're examining their hearts and they say, you know what, I can see God's changing, but I really need to grow, right? But I'm not really sure what to do. Then put your name and your contact information on an information request card, right? And, you know, just say, I just want to talk to you, Pastor and then give it to me or one of the deacons, and I'll be happy to sit down and chat with you. Or if you say, I'm not doing that right now, I don't want people looking at me, fbcboron at gmail.com, just email me, say, Pastor, I'd like to talk to you about the fruit of my life. My job is not to to judge your fruit, my job is to help you, and I want to help you grow. Also, for the same time, if you're someone who's learning to abide in Christ... Right. I want to know more how I can stay connected with God. I'm so, you know, caught up in the in this world. How can I abide in Christ? Well, I can I'd love to talk to you about that. In fact, I wrote a book on that particular subject by the way, just so you know, right? Right? That's the whole purpose of the book is to teach people to abide in Christ, to stay connected with him. And I'd love to talk to you about that as well. But most importantly, if you're somebody who has not come to Christ and put your faith in Christ, don't leave this place without talking to me if you're ready to come to faith in Christ. I would love to share with you from the scriptures how you can turn to Christ in faith and be saved today. So with that, let me let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.